Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I am Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gloria Richard Davis about diversity and inclusion in reproductive medicine. Dr. Richard Davis is with the University of Arkansas's Medical Sciences as Executive Director, Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and also serves as a professor of reproductive endocrinology and infertility in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Richard Davis, thank you so much for being on ASRM today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Now, last year, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Thomas, who is the chair of the ASRM Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force. And we talked a little bit about how he became interested in the field of reproductive medicine. For our listeners, can you tell us what drew you into the field of reproductive medicine? Sure. How far back do you want me to go? <laughs> as, far back, as far back as you feel necessary. Okay, so I'll start with my residency program. You know, every resident has to do research. And for my resident research project, I actually looked at clomid use in PCOS patients and the efficacy in pregnancy rates. And this was back in, you know, mid-80s. So it's fairly early on. We didn't have a reproductive endocrinologist faculty for my program. I did my residency at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. But we had a medical endocrinologist who was interested in this area. So he was treating patients with infertility with Clomid. And so I joined him in a research project that he was conducting. And, you know, it really just um, it drew me in. The patients that we dealt with, the challenges that those patients had really kind of tugged at my heart. And being in obstetrics and gynecology, where we have this dichotomy of patients, we have patients who have pregnancies that are unwanted. You know, they didn't plan the pregnancy. It was a surprise pregnancy. And then we have these patients who so desperately want to get pregnant, but can't. And so that was probably the first thing that kind of drew me to these patients is wanting to help them to achieve this goal of parenthood. And then um, when I looked at actually doing uh, an REI fellowship, the Army's only fellowship program was at Walter Reed in D.C., and it did not have an IVF arm to their program. So it was not something that I was willing to commit two to three years to and not get an IVF experience. So at that point, I really just kind of laid that interest to rest. And I went on and I did general OBGYN for about five years until my husband was going to University of Michigan to do a reconstructive urology fellowship. And at that point, I was going to look at moving. And I said, if I'm going to move, then I should look at doing REI fellowship. So the only fellowship was in uh, Detroit at Wayne State. And fortuitously, it was the first year that REI went into the match system. So when I applied, they had one position open. And I was very grateful for having been selected 
as the fellow for that program. And I talk about how life imitates art, art imitates life, whichever way it goes. We happen to be experiencing some infertility challenges of our own. And so that really just cemented my interest in fertility and helping women to achieve that goal of parenthood, which included me at the time. And I'd have to say that empathy is something that that has been a through line with a lot of professionals in reproductive medicine that that I've spoken to, not only on the show, but just at conferences and, and in passing. With your own struggles with infertility, had there been infertility in your family or your husband's family? No, I come from a very large Catholic South Louisiana family. Fertility was never a problem. And my my husband came from a family of seven. So neither side had experienced infertility. And you have been now in the field of reproductive medicine for how many years? So I finished my fellowship in 94. So 25 plus years at this point. And in all that time, I mean, 25 years, it's, it's, and especially in the sciences, is things continuously change and are always on this curve going somewhere sometimes we can't even see. Yes. What have been some of the major changes uh, <laughs> in the field that you've seen in, 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 in your years? And, and I know that there'll, there'll be a lot of them, but what are, give us a few examples right. of some of the major ones that you've seen in, in these 25 years. So when I was in my fellowship, intracytoplasmic sperm injection was in its infancy. And in fact, I can distinctly remember making our microinjection needles in the lab, right? We had uh, the glass rods and we're spinning it down and creating needles. It was like, this is way too hard, right? And then, um, you know, fast forward where now you purchased all of these things. And we have gotten to a point where ICSI is really, uh, has really revolutionized how we treat male infertility. So that's, that's been a huge um, innovation that has markedly changed our approach to treating male factor infertility. And then the other thing that comes to mind is uh, egg freezing. We, we were doing some third-party reproduction, and certainly ASRM uh, recommended for women who are over 40 to consider donor X, to consider third-party reproduction. Well, we used to do this in fresh cycles, which was a lot more expensive, logistically a nightmare in, in uh, coordinating cycles, et cetera. So in 2012, when egg freezing came off of the experimental list, it changed dramatically what we could offer women, you know, knowing that the initial interest in egg freezing was really about helping cancer patients uh, maintain their or preserve their fertility. But an outcome of of this procedure or this technique has been that it can be applied to so many other women. So now 
Women can freeze their eggs if they want to prolong reproduction. They don't have to freeze embryos because many of these women are single. And so they don't want to have to choose um, a sperm donor and create embryos. And then in the future, they may meet someone who they really want to have a child with. So that's been that's been an amazing difference in what we have to offer women as it relates to women who have undergone or who are about to undergo cancer treatments or women who are at a point in their career where they're not ready to think about having children, but they also don't want to forego that option. So they can freeze their eggs for future fertility. Thank you. I'm not to ask, February is diversity, equity, and inclusion month for ASRM. And uh, again, earlier I mentioned that last year I got the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Thomas, who is the the chair of the, uh, the brand new ASRM diversity, equity, and inclusion task force. And we had a quite lengthy conversation. And one of the goals of the task force is to not only promote, but educate others about expanding the profession to traditionally underrepresented groups in the field of reproductive medicine. And I, I was wondering, I wanted to ask you, uh, what are some steps you believe can help promote inclusion in the profession for young people? So thanks for that question. Um, I was happy to work with Dr. Thomas uh, on this task force and I actually co-chaired our subcommittee one. And in that subcommittee, we had a lot of conversations around how we diversify our healthcare workforce in reproductive medicine. And so uh, a lot of our attention and efforts went into talking about pipeline programs. So as the executive director for diversity for UAMS, we have pipeline programs that actually start at the kindergarten level through high school, focusing on, on increasing uh, young children's interest in STEM and sustaining that interest, right, through college. And then once they get to college, then we're trying to help direct their interest in healthcare as a profession. Now, we have colleges in medicine, nursing, pharmacy, college of public health, et cetera. So for us, it doesn't really matter what direction they want to go in. We support what direction that is through college. And then, of course, we support our students once they're on campus to achieve their goals. But when I start to think about ASRM and the pipeline programs that we need to develop, we may not have the, have the ability or the liberty to go as far back as kindergarten, but we can certainly start in college and then medical school trying to identify the talent and grow that talent pool so that we can, in fact, increase diversity within, whether it's in the fellowship programs or it's in the laboratory ladder or nursing, business, mental health, right? In all of those areas, we need to increase our diversity because we know when we look at the demographic landscape that we're seeing an increase in communities of color. We're seeing an increase in LGBTQ communities that needs care and many other vulnerable communities 
So we need to sort of double down and focus on how we can grow this diversity pipeline. We're having a meeting um, in the next couple of weeks because you and I had a conversation about um, our world in a pandemic that we're having to do so much virtually. So we're having a meeting in a couple of weeks to talk about a virtual mentorship program, both in clinical and in research, because I really feel like we don't have the luxury right now of face-to-face. Right after we had the webinar, I got an email from a resident in Oakland, California. And what she relayed to me was she's in a community program. She's very interested in REI as a, a subspecialty, but she didn't feel like she was competitive and she's not at a program that has a fellowship. She hasn't been able to really do research, you know, and she hasn't been able to do elective rotations. So as a result of that email from her, I reached out to some of our task force members and said, I created a virtual mentorship program for UAMS. And so I know the platform works. We have not yet done it with research, but one of our other committee members piped in and said, hey, we can do this for research too. So we're meeting and we're going to work on how we can actually establish a virtual mentorship program for clinical interest and research. So I'm really excited about that. And I, it sounds absolutely fascinating. And I, it, it makes me also curious because you mentioned, you know, the, the unspoken financial barriers of yes. trying to pursue this type of field, to pursue the field of reproductive medicine alone. And I think that it, what we're beginning to see more and more now as the pandemic has taught us is that there are these now cost-effective ways of, yes. you know, uh, uh, being able to maybe move not completely uh, up the ladder, but to, to the next step, uh, offering them, you know, some more time into, in, 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 in to get there. You mentioned the webinar. Was this the most recent ASRM webinar with the, with the task force? Yes, it was the most recent. It was, it was our subcommittee one that mm-hmm. really talked about diversifying our uh, healthcare workforce. I'm speaking today with Dr. Gloria Richard Davis. We're talking about uh, diversity and inclusion and in, in reproductive medicine, and we're almost out of time. I, I just I, I want to ask you one more question. What's a major takeaway you'd like listeners to think about some more about you know diversity, equity, and inclusion in reproductive medicine, and, and not not just in 2021, but maybe you know a little bit further down the line? You know, ASRM joined ACOG um, in a joint statement uh, standing against racism. And they went back and they talked about the historical account of racism, but there's also the current environment or culture that continues to support racism. Implicit bias is one of those things that many people are not very conscious of. They say, well, I'm not racist, but in our fabric are embedded certain implicit biases that we have to acknowledge and recognize in order to mitigate against them, right? So one of the things that 
ABOG, for the oral examiners, for our institution, we're now mandating some implicit bias awareness, which at least makes people stop and think about it. There's the Harvard implicit bias test that if individuals have never taken, I would strongly encourage you to do that so that it sort of raises your own awareness. And then when we talk about a just culture in reproductive medicine, looking at it from the perspective of the patient, access, cultural competent care, right? Are we doing what is necessary for the patients that we serve to receive quality care, no matter where they live, whether it's urban or whether it's rural? People who are seeking fertility treatment, trying to build their families, it really shouldn't matter where they are. We need to work on removing whatever barriers exist. Dr. Richard Davis, I would love to have you back on again soon, along with others, so that we can do a much larger roundtable discussion about uh, everything you just mentioned. I think that it would be very good for our listeners to be engaged with that. I, I, I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gloria Richard Davis today about diversity, uh, inclusion, and equity in reproductive medicine, even in this truncated form, it's it's very informative and I, we, we definitely need to revisit this. Thank you so much for taking time out to be on the show today. Thanks, Jeff. I, I enjoyed our conversation and I would love to continue it. Fantastic. I am Jeffrey Hayes and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.